0: You're watching the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. And on this episode, we're joined by John Gucci Foley, a former narrator and solo pilot for the Blue Angels. Gucci puts his storytelling in full afterburner on this episode, including the time he almost shut down his commanding officer and the lessons he learned that would later lead to him being selected by the Navy's Blue Angels. Gucci's also going to share some insight and behind-the-scenes stories on that famous trip the Blue Angels took to Moscow, Russia in 1992, and what it was like to have a Russian pilot in the backseat of his F-18 Hornet. So sit back, relax, and please join me in welcoming John Gucci Foley to the podcast. All right, you're listening to another episode of the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by John Gucci Foley. A one of the most sought-after public speakers in the world. He's a high-performance coach, a podcast host, a best-selling author, and most importantly to me, a former member of the United States Navy Blue Angels. Gucci, thank you so much for joining me, my man.
1: Brian, glad to be here. And, and you know, those words are sacred on the team. They mean a lot more than just uh, something to be appreciation. There's a real depth to that. So I can't wait. Hope we unpack that. Glad to be here with you and your audience.
0: And I had a feeling you were gonna answer it just like that. <laughs> so um <laughs> Yeah. So I got a really cool book in the mail yesterday. I wasn't going to open with this. It's called The Yellow Helmet. And I was flipping through the pages yesterday and a number of pilots have contributed stories about how they got their call signs, including you. And so that was the first time I learned how you got your call sign. Would you be open to sharing that here with this audience?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I I think call signs are so cool. And most of the people in the audience realize there's always two stories to, uh, uh, usually two stories to a call sign. The, the one that you can talk in public and all about, and then some Sometimes the, the real story. So mine is actually very simple. I was um, uh, in the A7 RAG at the time. And RAG the replacement air group. I'm flying in Fallon, Nevada. Uh, up until that point, my call sign was Foles, just short for Foley. That's how sometimes they happen. That was my football call sign. Uh, then I got a call sign... Um, Mo, I think it was, cause we had, we had three students in my class and they called us the three stooges. So Larry, Mo and Curly. Bottom line though, very simple. Uh, we're at this, uh, we're, we're, we're practicing strike warfare. We call a King's X. Uh, everything was going well. It's like a Friday night. Hey, let's go into Reno. So I'm thinking Reno. I show up in the BOQ and, uh, I'm, I'm wearing not only a button down shirt, but I have this thin black leather tie on. All right. Wasn't even cool in the 80s. Right. And all my other teammates, you know, they're there in jeans and T-shirts and they look at me and they go, what is that? You know, that's Gucci. Right. And no fighter pilot wants to be called Gucci. Right. And I'm like, you know, I flinched. And once I flinched, it it stuck. Right. Now, uh, I think the other thing, though, is I was living on a sailboat and driving an Alfa Romeo at the time. So I I think I gave him a lot of ammunition.
0: Oh, that's, that's a great story. I love those stories. Uh, let's back up and talk about your early history in life. Uh, so your, your father was in the army. You were yeah. born in Germany. Yeah. Army brat. Tell me about your upbringing and how that might have influenced your decision into a military career.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I came from a family that was so supportive. So my dad was this army officer, he's an engineer. I was born in Germany, like you said. Uh, we moved around, typical army brat. Every three years, I'm in a different school. I think I went to seven schools before high school. And I actually loved that. And I remember we were in, um and my dad, by the way, he represented Integrity, and character to me. I didn't need definitions because I just thought of my dad, right? And my mom was this beautiful woman of love and compassion, and so I, I had a really great upbringing. And I'm not—I know not everybody has those, but it was really uh, a supporting, uh, but also challenging upbringing. So my dad took me to air show. He was at the Naval War College, and uh, he took me to an air show that weekend. And I looked up in the sky. And I see these six magnificent blue jets flying that day. And those of you who've been to air shows know it's not just what you see. It's visceral. You feel it, right? The energy in the crowd, the smell of the smoke oil. I mean, I'm just, I'm looking around and I'm going, Dad. Dad. I'm going to do that. I actually, he says later, I, I said that. And I didn't say, oh, I hope to do that. I want to do that. I just turned to my dad and said, dad, I'm going to do that. And prior to that, I wanted to be him. I wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to join the army. And, and I'll tell you, within a nanosecond, the Blue Angels shifted that. Uh, and that was my goal. It took 18 years uh, with a lot of obstacles, by the way, uh, and eventually had the rare privilege to put on that blue suit with the gold helmet.
0: Okay, nerd question here. Do you remember what aircraft they were in? F-4 Phantoms, A-4s?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the F-4. Wait a minute. It would have been in the yeah the late 70s. I think it was the F-4s. And the reason I say that is because I remember how dark the smoke was, you know, uh, on, on some of the, uh, the J-79 engines and just the, the sheer noise of the F-4. I mean, that was one of the greatest airshow airplanes for noise. It's awesome.
0: Yeah, I wish I had had a chance. So you went on to college, uh, your first year, University of Colorado, but then you switched over to the Naval Academy. Talk a yeah. little bit about why the switch and obviously probably driven by your desire to be in the military.
1: Well, yeah. No, it was driven by being rejected to get into the military. So I, uh, my dad had gone to West Point, and so I knew about the academies. And so um, I said, well, shoot, that's the path I want to go. You know, there's obviously multiple paths, right? And, um, and I put in my application, and I get this letter back in the mail, and it says, reject it. And I'm going rejected. What the heck is this all about? And they said I was not physically qualified. And uh, now this is surprising me because I'm a young kid playing football wrestling. And they said I had too much protein in my urine. I mean, and I'm thinking to myself, what the heck is that? And, uh, bottom line was, um, I got punched out for medical. So I, I had, it took me a year, you know, and I was disappointed, but didn't give up. I said, okay, well, let's, let's see what this medical waiver process looks like. And in the meantime, you know, I had to go somewhere. So I, I like to play football. I like to ski. And I'm, I'm like, you know, I might as well make the best of this. And I just said, Colorado football. They were good, uh, ski walked on, played football, skied, had a blast, but totally never gave up on the, the uh, path of going through the, the, the Naval Academy. Fortunately, got the waiver and then went to Annapolis um, and played football there.
0: And then you obviously ended up then pursuing the naval aviation part of a career after you graduated. So I'm assuming that tied to your desire when you went to the air show with your father um, but as part of your naval aviation training, you end up in a town called Beaville, Texas. Yeah. And I live in Austin, Texas, right? Good. So when I talked to, I've never been to Beville, but I've been to NAS Corpus Christi and I've been to NAS Kingsville. And when I've talked to other aviators, th- those would be the first two on their list as opposed to also going to Beaville because it's quite remote. Was that your opinion experience?
1: Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Number one, Beaville is no longer a naval aviation station and it's a prison. So they that should tell you uh what it was like, okay. Uh and uh but I purposely picked Beeville. I'll tell you why. Because I really wanted jets bad, right? And that's a jet training. And uh and so I wanted to go where there was no distractions. I figured if I stayed in Pensacola or went to Meridian, I'd be distracted. And I said, what's the most remote place where I can just focus on flying? It was Beeville, And and I got to tell you, it was a great experience. I remember living in the BOQ initially and I'm going, man, I got nothing to do but study and uh, and, and hopefully, uh, uh, you know, fly jets. And it, it all worked out. I'm, I was glad I picked that that location.
0: And you end up flying A7s. Was that your platform of choice or were you considering anything else?
1: I don't think anybody picks the A7 initially. All right. Uh, at least, uh, at least my time frame. No, it, it was, it was the classic needs of the Navy. Um, I had gone through, you know, beville it was what, 84 is when I think I got my wings. And uh, there, the F-18 was, you know, the brand new spanking jet. In fact, I, I think they had only given one or two F-18 slots to a nugget, you know, a new uh, uh, someone coming out of training up until that point and uh i wanted that i wanted the f18 i wanted a, a single seat fighter and attack role i was like man this is everything right uh i had done fairly decent in my pilot grade so i was number 1 and, and and pretty high up and i i put in uh f18 orders and then my backup was uh the f4 believe it or not that was my second choice because i knew they were transition to the F-18. Uh, bottom line is, they didn't give me the F-18. They were saying I was too young. They weren't giving those orders out, even though, you know, I, I had the grades and all that. I think, ironically, and, and uh and uh, Matt Seaman, who ended up being my lead solo, right? I think he was one of the first nuggets to get the the orders and I, I didn't know that till after we uh you know got on the team. Uh but no I had to go the A7 route. And what was interesting is you know the F-14 was the cool jet, Top Gun was coming out, all that kind of stuff. Um I had the grades. I could have picked the the, the F-14, but uh I called up the Pentagon. And to this day, I'm blown away because I call up and I'm just looking for advice, you know, because because b saying, no, you don't you know, we don't have the slots. And I'm going, hey, man, let's let's find a slot. You know, I'll clean the bathrooms. I'll do anything for a while. And so I call up the, the detailers, which don't deal with student pilots, by the way. And so nobody knows who, who to talk to me. They finally put me through the switchboard and I, I get the head of all aviation detailing, who, by the way, is Gil Rood. Okay, to this day. Yeah. So this is a classic. So I'm a little student calling up and those of you in the audience, Gil flight leader, you know, just. Icon, right? And, uh, he's, he's, uh, actually, this is before he gets selected to be the boss, right? And, uh, and he's the head detailer. And I, and I get him on the phone. I'll never forget the conversation. And, and Gil and I joke about this on the bus at the reunion. You know, I said, um, hey, you know, Gil, do you remember me calling up? He actually didn't remember, which is normal, you know, cause he talks to so many people. But for me, it was life changing. And I just asked his advice. And I said, you know, I really want to fly F 18s. Um, they, they, they're saying there's not a Slot. How do I do it? He goes, you know what? Uh, let me get back to you. First off, he said, who are you? How'd you get this number? Basically, right? And, and then he said, you know, I'll get back to you. He, no kidding. I get this call. I'm in the ready room. And, and the, the uh, duty officer picks up the phone and goes, hey, Gucci, uh, uh, Pentagon. And I'm thinking Pentagon. And, and it's, it happened to be uh, Gil Rude. And he, here's his advice. He goes, Gucci, look it. He said, it um, seems things are, things are going well. If you want the F-14, take it, whatever. He said, but if you really want the Hornet, you know, because that transition, once you pick F-14s, you're going to be there, right? He said, I would go to the midway. He says, here's what you do. Select A-7s, uh, try to be a must-pump, go to the midway, because those squadrons are going to transition from A-7s to F-18s faster than anything else. I'm like... Gold. I got I got top secret information so that's the path I chose and then of course obstacles come in the way I don't qual for the must pump all right i actually was selected to go to midway i'm on my my carrier qualifications and while i passed i wasn't strong enough to get those must pump orders so i ended up three years uh in, with the fighting redcocks flying a7s uh, then transitioned as an ip in the hornet with the marines but um those three years ended up being the best Thing that ever happened to me. And I think that's the other thing is I learned so much flying a single engine, single seat airplane off an aircraft carrier. Wow. You know, you, you got to stay alive. And it, it taught me a lot.
0: And by all accounts, from what I've read, you did really well during those three years uh, flying off aircraft carriers. you were pretty much living the top gun life for real. You were aboard the USS Enterprise 1986 yeah. over there in the Mediterranean. Tell me about that first operational deployment for you. Uh, obviously sounds like you learned a lot, but what was really the mission that you guys were out there doing?
1: Yeah, well, we actually left out of San Francisco and did the Westpac and we did a world tour because if you remember in 86, uh, Libya kicked up, right? And so I just happened to be in, you know, on the carrier, Nugget Pilot. You know, talk about a cruise of a lifetime, you know uh and eventually we uh we do the classic you know uh Philippines and the Indian Ocean, and then they try to get us through the suez canal uh they wouldn 't let us they wouldn 't let the carrier go through prior to the strikes the day after the strikes uh we go through and and you know we 're there to see what happens bottom line, you know Qaddafi didn 't do anything and uh uh but it was an amazing experience as a nugget. Uh, to, you know, uh, I, I think your first cruise, no matter who you are and no matter where you go to is, is amazing. But I had a lot of good opportunities actually became a, not only a section lead of division league, they actually gave me my strike leader qual as a junior lieutenant, um, on the carrier. And, and, uh, uh, I just enjoyed the opportunity.
0: Yeah, That's great. So then, uh, you mentioned you ended up being an instructor in the F-18, right? Yeah. Um, it, at some point, then you decided that you wanted to apply for the Blue Angels. What drove that decision for you? Oh,
1: well, I always wanted to apply for the Blues. At some point, I finally got enough hours, and I finally got in that window where I could apply, right? And uh – uh, so I actually went from I okay, so I, I applied to the Blues when I, from my fleet squadron and those of you who track the Blues it rarely do you move from a fleet squadron right into the Blues you don't have enough hours you don't have enough experience the the, the team doesn't know you enough uh, typically you come from the RAG Top Gun some sort of other you know uh, place right. And so uh but I applied and and um, I I put my let my, my my package together you need your commanding officer's uh endorsement and I I, I was going to have it and then uh, Ryan one day I'm out this is right before uh the strikes on Iran this is in 88 because it was where the Straits of Hormuz was an issue and I'm practicing leading a, a bombing sortie out in the water and I accidentally shoot a missile okay By mistake, I mean I shoot a Sidewinder Almost shot down my own boss, which is not good either, right? Uh, because I got my switchology mixed up and all that kind of stuff, I didn't use my checklist. There's tons of lessons learned. Bottom line is my skipper ripped up that letter right away. He's like, I'm not endorsing you anymore. By the way, you're grounded, which I was. I was grounded for like three three days uh, and uh, learned a lot. I'll give you the quick lesson. And they, they asked me this question in my Blue Angel interview, you know, kind of top secret inside information here. Um, uh, somebody asked, me, hey, Gucci, have you ever done anything dumb in an airplane? And I'm like looking at them. I'm going, what, are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, many times. And let me tell you the time I accidentally shot a missile and I go through the whole story, right? And uh, they hired me. Now, now you got to think about this, Ryan. Wait a minute. Why would the team hire someone like that? What do you think?
0: Transparency, trust, and integrity.
1: Okay. Love those words. Uh, I think, hopefully, yes. Okay. But also they realized that um, I learned something from the mistake. See, it was a mistake. So you could say, okay, Gucci, you got in a hurry. You didn't break out. I had to jettison uh, a bomb that was stuck. So it wasn't a normal situation, right? Uh, and that's what I thought it was too. I said, you know, Gucci, you didn't do your checklist, which you know, we all know in aviation, you do your checklist. Um, it took me three days to figure out the real root cause. It wasn't the checklist. It was complacency. See, I had gotten too comfortable carrying live ordinance. It had gotten normal to me. I mean, I remember the first time little hair stand up on the back of your neck. This now was just normal operations. And um and I realized that and I just I, I still got goosebumps because that that lesson that I learned served me, probably kept me alive. Um, on the Blue Angels and also well beyond the Blue Angels. And, and I think that's why they hired me, besides being open and honest, integrity and all that stuff, which, you know, absolutely, it's huge, right? I think they learned because I, I told the same story and, 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 he, and what I didn't realize then was what I realized on my third year as a Blue Angel. And, you know, I got the three year tour, number seven and then, then, you know, opposing lead solo was that towards that timeframe, the, the real threat is complacency getting too comfortable flying low to the ground close to people? Now it's not that—that's not a threat when you're learning. When you're new, man, your eyes are this big, and you're like, "Holy crap!" Right? But at some point, uh, it, it 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 can it can bite you. And so they know, "Wow, here's a guy who's already been through that lesson and uh, probably won't have to learn it again."
0: Yeah, that word has come up numerous times on this channel. Complacency. So, uh, not surprised there. Uh, so you mentioned you got selected for the three year rotation narrator first yep. how do the blue angels make that decision to you know they like for example the blue angels just recently announced a new crop of team members that will be joining yes yeah and uh but we don't know what position they're going to be flying exactly. yet how do they make that decision
1: well mostly it's made on um when you have to rotate back to the fleet right so whoever is selected uh, at least i don't think on my team. And I don't think you, you pick someone for a certain slot when you're picking them. You pick the best person that's going to be for the team. And then, like you said, all the newbies show up and then, then it starts to decide who's going to go to be the narrator, who's going to go into the diamond, who's going to go in the solos, all that stuff. And, and to answer your question, uh, number one is, for at least my case, I was junior. I was very young. The other person uh, that we 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 picked, uh, uh, Hulk Inman, uh, he was about three years more senior than me. So he needed to get back to the fleet. So he was going to go directly into the formation. I had extra time. So I, I think it was that simple that, hey, Gucci's young. Let's give him the, uh, the three-year tour.
0: So your first year's narrator, uh, the narrators I've spoken to in the past, narration is like the least of their concern. And that's, you know, most of us that go to an air show, I mean, we just go, oh, there's the narrator, he narrates. But there's so much that goes on behind the scenes throughout the entire air show weekend. What's the, What was your experience being a narrator?
1: Yeah, well, well. Number one, think of it as assistant ops, right? You, um, you know, I loved being narrator. You know, I I loved every year, okay. But narrator was fun. Some people are like, no, no, let me get in the formation right away, which, of course, you know, is is also how I felt. But um, I loved it. Now, so to answer your question, is you're absolutely right. Narration is nothing. That's knucklehead stuff. That's that's little. What you're really doing is you're the advanced person, right? And so you you build this special bond with number eight, the events coordinator, and the two. Of you, uh, you know, eight owns the air show prior to like the weekend before, and then he hands or she hands a, a folder to um to number seven. I remember walking out to the jet sometimes, and and uh they'd hand me a folder. BA was was my number eight. And uh and and all of it, and as I'm flying, by the way, I'd let my crew chief fly the jet, I'd be reading. What the heck is is this all about? And uh, then you own the air show when you land. So, you know, you got to do media rides, which is absolute blast. I love that. But you also got to make sure the crowd line is in place, the flight lines in place. you got a lot of responsibilities and you got to trust your teammates because if they did a good job, the job was easy. If they had some challenges, guess what? You had to deal with it. And bottom line was um, really a lot of fun, a lot a great job. Uh, and then of course you're going to move into the formation and, uh, and that, of course was even, you know, more challenging, but I had a blast while I was number seven.
0: You ever forget a line while in the middle of the narration and have to improv?
1: You know, uh, I'm sure that happened, but, uh, you spend a lot of time, uh, practicing the narration in the desert. Uh, what I I think is a better question or a more nuanced question than that, it's, um, you gotta be authentic. I think the best narrators, if you're too rote, okay, if all you're doing is memorizing every single word. And back then we stood there with our arms level and you're supposed to stay in that attention. And now it's totally different, okay? And I think I think that the team has progressed in many ways, right? Um but the narrator should be more comfortable. You're engaging the audience. So the answer to your question is um I think I actually ad libbed on purpose some, but don't tell the boss, don't tell the team. <laughs>
0: And then you fleet up, as you mentioned, uh, posing solo. A lot of the uh, solo pilots I've spoken to, they enjoy the opposing solo role more than other roles because it's – as they describe it, you show up, you fly. you know, Not a lot of responsibility, right? Was that y- your experience?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was the funnest for that exact reason. Your job is to fly and learn – to be a, a good solo pilot, stay alive, number one, and, and finally figure out how to teach someone else. So, uh, it was the most fun in that regard. When you, when you're five and you fleet up to five, you got, you're doing more than the flying. Not only you're training number six, but you're also the opso and there's a lot of extra, uh, work. So to, to be honest with you, yes, yeah, six was an absolute blast.
0: And then you obviously become lead solo. So there's a distinct difference there, right? Because now you are responsible for the training of the opposing solo as well as their safety and everything else. How is that for
1: you? Well, for me, it was great because Thumper was an amazing stick and he learned so quickly. So we, and we had a bond, you know, the thing about solo pilots and really anybody on the team, but there is a special bond between the solos only because you just, it's only two of you spend much, so much time together. So we actually, we had chemistry, still do. We connected. And that's so important um, with any kind of program. Then he also was just a great stick. So when we go out to winter training, uh, he learned all the maneuvers very quickly. And uh, and also I could trust him. And that's see that's really critical. Of uh, when you say trust, of course I trusted everybody. But but Thumper had that nuance where. You know, uh, I think he knew how to how to keep his butt out of trouble beyond what I said. Right. And uh, bottom line is we progressed so quickly that we were able to put in a bunch of new maneuvers, which is really hard to do in, an, in a show season. Right. And we put in the section high alpha that had never before been done. It's still in the show today, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, and And that was really exciting.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, I was going to ask you about that. So I had watched a, what, your podcast, the high performance podcast, mm-hmm. uh, you interviewed Michelle Curran, and, and yeah. she's a former Thunderbird pilot, yeah. solo pilot, and you had mentioned you had implemented three maneuvers into the demo, I think, for the 1992 season that didn't exist before. So you, you just mentioned the high performance alpha, what were the other two? And did you take any out to like fit those maneuvers in?
1: Yeah. So, you know, every team, I think, you know, you love to put a new maneuver in, you know, you would love to put your stamp on something, but that's not the first priority. The first priority is you got to train the new team members and you got to put on a safe and a very powerful air show. Um, and that's why the new teams with, you know, the super horn and all this, they're they're experimenting, right? Cause you gotta, you gotta do what's best for the, um, the airframe too. Right. Uh, so the bottom line is, We were in winter training. Uh, Thumper and I, uh, I I actually thought about it. You know, we'd done the the high alpha as a single airplane. No one had ever done it in section, let alone line abreast, which which we all know, I think we should know, is the hardest, right? And your slow speed and all that. But it wasn't even the maneuver. It was the rendezvous that was the hard part. Because I was coming off as five. I was coming off the line abreast loop. And that's a split-ass rendezvous to a slow speed That's crazy. In fact, I I did it three times and all three times I pulled it off. It worked. You know, we're trying. But my old boss, uh, moneymaker, who was there when I was number seven, looks at me. He was watching one of the air shows. He goes, Gucci. You're going to bust your ass or you're going to, or you might be able to handle it, but someone someday is going to bust their ass on this, right? And, uh, so we have to change the rendezvous from a vertical one to a horizontal. So to answer your question, it's the idea of a new maneuver is, is really not that hard, but coordinating it within the sequence with the other pilots is what is hard, and so Thumper and I, we did the first time ever, we did the section takeoffs, where instead of six doing a low-speed, high-performance climb, and then five doing their little separate, we said, hey, let's just do this together, and it will look cool, because as five, I can roll right over your canopy, and then we're gonna wait till we say, ready, hit it, and 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 we'll both, we'll do this bomb burst kind of thing. Well, we did it, we forgot to tell the crash crew and guess what? They rolled the crash crew. They thought we had, we had hit. It looked so cool. And I'm thinking to myself, Hey, that's a great maneuver if the crash crew rolled, right? Uh, but the bottom line is, uh, we can, we didn't get it into the formation because boss was a little bit pissed. And, uh, and, uh, and then also the, uh, the, we couldn't do the timing. They, the diamond had gotten through their, their rendezvous, uh, at a point where, but guess what? It's, it's in the formation now. That, that's that's there now. And we also put in the barrel roll break and some other maneuvers.
0: Yeah, that's that's awesome. I love that Blue Angel trivia. Always wonder where those maneuvers come from. So, 92, your final year in the team, obviously historic and documented really well in Rob Stone's film, Around the World at the Speed of Sound. Yeah. You guys go over to Europe. You visit eight different countries, three of them of which the Blue Angels I don't think had ever flown in before. Correct. Uh, I want to start with the logistics first. Yeah. You guys flew eight F-18 Hornets, not the traditional seven. You two took two C-130s and God knows how many times you had to refuel and how many hours you were over the Atlantic. So I would love to hear about all the logistics.
1: Yeah. So real quick on that. Um, that was one of the big concerns. I mean, not only do we have to think about this. Uh, at a normal air show, you go to the the site in the U.S. and you're there for four days. Uh, you bring, you know, Fat Albert with the troops and and whatever parts you need. Now you're going to go over to not just Europe, which was had been done before, but I think it had been like 26 years since we were over there. We're talking the Eastern Bloc, okay? We flew in Moscow. We flew in Bulgaria. We flew in Romania. Mania. We were in two, two to three show sites a week, and guess what? You got to have uh, supplies, parts, advance, um, special clearances. I mean, different languages. So you took a, a a show that you know, rightly so, takes a lot of effort in the United States, and you tripled that. OK, um, so you can imagine uh, both, you know, the pressure on the boss and all of us. And as the opso, holy crap, you know, you got so many things. So the bottom line is we did um, take eight jets. We took two, you know, C-130s. Uh, we we had to do a lot of coordination. Boy, my team was awesome. Okay, the Bert and Ernie guys, and we called the second one Ernie. You know, they did all the flight plannings and all that kind of stuff. Mo and the maintenance had all their troops uh, figured out how we're going to transport them. Rob Stone, Vienna Productions, came along to document this. Um, and then, oh, by the way, you're going to fly against the Russians. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, you know, I mean, we could talk more about Moscow, but and it wasn't just the Russians, you know, it was Bulgaria, Romania, Italy, all this stuff. Uh, phenomenal trip of a lifetime.
0: So another nerd question for you. So the Blue Angels have seven pilots. Uh, who flew that eighth jet over?
1: Ah, good, good question. So, uh, it was towards the end of the year and at the end of the year, you know, we select the new pilots. And so it was the new incoming boss. We called them the mini boss. And so mini boss got to fly the eight, eight jet. Good question. No, most people would never know that.
0: Uh, and then you guys wore special suits over there. Um, because you flew over water what yeah. uh, you can clearly see him in Rob Stone's documentary what were those suits
1: yeah, we call them poopy suits that's the inside thing it's it's actually a suit that any naval aviator will wear when you're flying over cold water, whether you're deployed or not. They're called dry suits, and they have these, you know, uh, uh, it's like a, a scuba diving suit, but it's 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 dry, so uh, if you go in the water, it'll give you more um, time, and I remember, but they're uncomfortable as crap, right? They really are. You don't want to be in this thing for very long, and we're flying over from Brunswick, Maine. We got some Air Force KC-10s t- to tank us, and we, we're doing the, the Great Circle route over Iceland. I think we went to Finland. That's where we were laying no, 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 Sweden. We were landing in Sweden. Um, and uh, that's why we wore the suits. But I got to tell you, looking down at icebergs floating around and uh, we're, we're playing music on the back radio and, and that kind of stuff. But you're going, you know, I, I don't want to end up floating around in that water.
0: Was that your longest flight uh, in your naval career to that point or had you done missions like that before?
1: That was the longest to that point um, uh yeah, they're they're not normal, but you know you need that tanker support. And I think we tanked. Honestly, I don't remember we tanked about t- at least ten times. And, and, but the reason we did that was not because the jet needed all of that. Um, it's because you want to have single engine wave off capability. You want to be topped off so that we always have to divert. So you're you're in there kind of topping off a lot.
0: And so it's one thing to obviously fly shows here in the United States. We have the FAA and other standard regulators. How is it flying in eight different countries in Europe? It, do the different countries and different languages and different rules make it harder to perform air shows in different countries or uh, was that handled in pretty standard?
1: Well, yes and no. And, and, and here's the, here's the, the no part. So the yes part for sure. Okay. Cause now, and really that's mostly in the pre-coordination phase. So, you know, eight's office has to really get the flight, uh, uh, you know, zone and, and you're explaining things that maybe aren't normal, right? Um uh you know, you're saying, hey, we want control of the airspace. Well, you know, Moscow, do they want to give you control of their airspace? No. So there's there's some challenges there, right? But the bottom line was um we could work through all of that. And plus, it kind of helped that they wanted us there, right? So it's like, whatever you need, we'll give you, right? Uh, but even though they would give it to us, you know, support material and all that, it might not be what what we need. So bottom line was it took more coordination, but also. Hey, who's going to give us a flight violation? Like, you think I'm worried about that? You know, I mean, if, uh, if you know, if Moscow doesn't like what I'm doing, too bad, right? So, uh, and I say that with tongue in cheek. Of course, we were, um, you know, not going to do anything crazy. But um, also, you know, you didn't really have to worry about it, right? You know, once Mo took control of the airfield and said, you know, whether it's Moscow or Romania, hey, boss, you know, we got control of the airfield. It's like, it's just a normal show. Nothing else matters.
0: And so let's talk about Moscow. Yeah. How, how crazy was it for you to fly into Moscow in a United States aircraft, a Blue Angel jet? And then I think you guys were greeted, uh, you know, essentially by, by, I think, the Russian night flight team, right? Yeah.
1: yeah. So first off, game changer. Um, you know, obviously today, it's a little bit more of a difference. But if you, if you want to go back to when that happened, that's 1992. Berlin Wallach came down in 89. So there a big change was going on in the world, right? And so when we put this show together, and by the way, credits to Boss Woleridge for getting us selected and not the Thunderbirds by the way. Um so as we go over there, it's it we know it's a game changer. But we went over there as the mission of the Blue Angels as ambassadors of goodwill. Okay. We didn't go over there and it was also a military to military exchange. And that's probably how they, they got it through the, the Pentagon and the White House and all that, which it did go through the White House. Uh, but the bottom line is, uh, can you imagine? So, so Ryan, here, here's the thing. We're in Finland. We've gone to, uh Sweden did an air show, flew to Finland, did an air show. Now we're gonna fly over to Moscow, okay? And I'll never forget checking in, right? As we're checking in and, and bosses, hey, this is Blue Angel uh number one, you know, uh flight level 300, or whatever. And uh Moscow's, you know, he's like, Oh, this is Moscow Center, um, you know, uh who are you? How many airplanes are you? And he comes up and he says, eight Navy F18s. And there's dead silence on the radio. Even though they knew we were coming. It's like, "What?" And uh, uh they finally takes a while they say continue. And then you're right. Um these these next thing we see is these SU27s and MiG 29s coming at us. Now, of course, we see them on the radar first. And uh and this is like, I, at least for me, you could talk to, you know, each pilot has his own perspective, but I'm like, the the little hairs are standing up, you know, because I'm like, "Holy crap, we've trained against this." We're actually flying over Moscow. I got I got a, a, an Su twenty seven, a MiG twenty nine coming at me. I'm like, this is cool. And so we start, you know, targeting them. Bosses like bosses goes, hey Gucci, you target this guy. We'll take that. And we start doing this stuff, and and uh, they're doing it to us. And bottom line is, they they rendezvoused and they rendezvoused on us. And even though we had planned this, it still blew you away to look over your wing and see this Su twenty seven. Flying formation on you. By the way, has not been through inner training. All right. Then a MiG twenty nine on them, and uh, and then the crazy part, Ryan, is so now we're a flight of what ten now. Okay, it was actually six in formation. The two seven jets and the eight jet were way back there by themselves. But we had now we had ten jets. What a, talk about a, a picture. Eight Navy F-18s, two Su-27s, two MiG-29s, all on the outpost, flying pretty damn close, to be honest with you. They, they, they tried to fly as close as we did, but they couldn't. But, um, uh, and bottom line is we come into the field, and now I'm thinking, holy crap, we forgot to brief the, the, the break, you know? So now it's like, what are we gonna do? You know? And, and sure enough, we, well, this is, wait and see what happens and boom the the two MiG 29s they pitched off then the SU 27s pitched off and then we were good to go you know we had our our same our, our same things but the other cool part about that is just landing and getting out of the jet and I'll, here's my memory all right so um and you're at Kabinka air base so this is their master jet base right outside of Moscow you see all these SU 27s MiG 29s and and it's really pomp and circumstance at first we marched back and and they got the they got the Russian band Playing, guess what? Our national anthem. And I gotta tell you, even though it was off key, they were missing notes, it was the best rendition of our national anthem I've ever heard because they practiced it, right? And anyhow, we do the official salutes and all that stuff. And then the crowd just, and it was all, it was all the families of the, of the military personnel. Um, it just opens up. And I've got pictures and we've got pictures of little kids. On our arms, um, you know, just swarmed by kids, and they're saying, "Welcome to Moscow, Blue Angels!" In English to us, they had learned that. It was mind blowing and uh, just an incredible experience.
0: Awesome! And one thing that was really well documented in uh, around the world at the speed of sound, you guys got to go ride in in the Russian jets, and they got to fly in Blue Angel jets, yeah, and yeah. so. Obviously, there's that great scene of I'm the pilot. You're the pilot. Yep. Um, and I've heard you tell this story would love for you to kind of recount your experience flying in the back of a Russian jet. And to add on to that, how different is a Russian cockpit compared to an American cockpit? D- does it translate well enough? Do you think where you, you could pretty much fly the plane or is it that different?
1: Oh yeah, of course you can fly a plane at that level of your skill level. You can do it, but they're in different gauges. I mean, their gauges are totally different. You can't, you know, I, I don't know how many kilometers I'm doing. Uh, I mean, the, the fuel's a total different thing, but it doesn't matter. A pilot's a pilot, right? Especially at that level. You can just now you can't start the airplane because I'm not sure what switch to pull, but once it started, it's like, Hey, okay, cool. Um, so the bottom line is that was actually easy and a lot of fun. Now I'm going to give you some inside stories here. All right. And I know this is being recorded. Uh, so I'll color it some but um here's the here's the real deal okay so we had we did had already coordinated some exchange rides. And it was very official, okay? Because, uh, you know, this had never been done before. A Russian hadn't flown in an F-18. Actually, I take that back. The head of the McCoy Design Bureau, uh, when I was number seven, flew in my jet. Uh, Valerie Manisky was his name, by the way. And that's when uh, they Russia had had brought over some MiG-29s two years prior. But that had been coordinated through the Pentagon. So bottom line is... Um, you know, we're now going to share some rides. And initially, my memory was there was only going to be two, two of them in our jets. Two of us in their jets. And uh, you know, we go through the official briefing, you pilot, me pilot, change, change controls. Um, so um, I get the 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 straw that I'm gonna fly their guy, right? And uh I didn't know if I was gonna get it right or not, it doesn't matter. Um so uh boss got a ride and and so next thing I know is is uh is I've got this guy in my back seat, and there's a classic f- footage in that Roundwell Speed of Sound where we're pointing fingers at each other. And I'll never forget this, Ryan, I mean, because we had talked about this in the briefing room, but we're on the tarmac. We're about to jump in my jet. I got this hero of the Soviet Union, you know, looking at me in the eye, and he starts going pretty aggressively, you pilot, me pilot, but his finger in my chest. And I'm thinking to myself, hey, pal, number one, we already talked about this, all right? What is you? What are you doing? So what was my reaction? typical fighter pilot. I'm starting to point my finger back in his chest going, you pilot, me pilot. And you should look at our eyes. Look at the eyes. Because after that little short exchange, I notice I turn around and I roll my eyes because I'm like, okay, pal, game's on. All right. Game's on. And you got in my back seat first. You made a big mistake. So being number five, you can do the dirty roll on takeoff. Well, that's not normal. I don't care what pilot you are. You don't do do that, right? So that got his eyes a little bit buggy. And then uh, the thing that's even hard about that maneuver is actually not the roll. That's actually pretty simple. Uh, but when you squat the jet... And now the gear are down, and you start to go up. It's not going to go very far till you run out of run out of speed, right? And poop. So then you got to roll it inverted, and now you're hanging it out because you're upside down, right on the edge, about to depart, and uh, you know 100 feet off the ground. And I remember he's like, "Ooh," and I'm, I was too though. I'm like, "Ooh," but we, we were fine. And then we get to the uh, then I'm like, "Okay, well, what am I going to do next?" Well, I, I turn around, and I'll never forget this, Ryan. I look out, and I'm just going to do a flyby, right. You know, but then I look out and I go, wait a minute. I mean, it's instead of flying by the runway, because there's no FAA, I looked over and I see all these SU-27s, MiG-29s right on the tarmac. I said, I'm going to buzz these guys, you know? So I slapped the jet, being five, you can get down to 50 feet. I slapped the jet on the deck. I'm starting to go, not, not near them, I'm talking over their head, turn the smoke on because I wanted to smoke them out with oil. But then I roll inverted. So now picture this, okay? Inverted, upside down, I don't know, 50 to 100 feet, somewhere like that. And I look in my rearview mirror, this guy's got his hands on the cockpit and he's looking around and he's like going, uh, oh, uh. Oh. And so, and then I unload the jet, I do the typical clear for a solo pilot, which is zero G full stick deflection. And you know, you go through, you know, three, four, five, six, seven and a half. I mean, I, I busted the G limiter. I, I said everything I want on this jet. Bam! Knocked him out. Right. And, uh, which is exactly what I was trying to do. So, so then Gucci gets the bright idea. Okay. He's knocked out of my back seat. When he wakes up, he's going to be a little disoriented. Why not wake up upside down? Right. So now I parked the jet upside down. Now, normally it only takes usually three to five seconds. Somebody comes back. Right. This guy's, I'm, I'm counting three seconds, five, 10 seconds, 15 seconds. I mean, he's knocked out in my back seat and I'm thinking to myself, all of a sudden, Holy crap, I killed him. And I'm thinking, this is not going to be good for international relations. Gucci, you just screwed the pooch, right? And luckily, he wakes up, and he, he starts yelling at me at this point. Not even with the calm. He's just yelling. He's like, okay. 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 And I start smiling. I'm like, okay. Now that we have an understanding, let's go play and let's have fun. And we, we, you know, I let him fly the jet. We had fun and he, you know, he flew me, he tried to knock me out. He couldn't. We had fun, but we, uh, we, we really enjoyed each other's airplanes. And more importantly, we enjoyed the time after the flying. In the bar together at the, at Moscow, at the, um, ballet, the Bush, Bush Corps or something like that, um, at a White House state dinner in Moscow. And we, what really what I walk away with, and you didn't ask me this, but I walk away with that they are, we're all human beings and we're all the same, actually. Um, and when you break through all the, you know, I'm okay. You, you know, you, you give me your best shot. I'll give you my best shot. Hey, we're, we're all humans. And it was the best. That's how I left. Uh, Moscow. And by the way, I think we can bring that back. I really do.
0: Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you that and then I thought I might stay away from it, but that's, that's good to know. Um I wanted to talk about the actual air show over yep. Moscow because that didn't go as planned as I understand it, no. but I'll let you share as much or as little as, as you want about that.
1: Yeah. So here's the backstory on the story. Okay. So um, we're going to do two flights on Moscow. One over uh, Moscow itself. So it's a remote show. You take off out of Kabinka, fly over downtown Moscow, and it's going to be a, a big show. Think Seattle, San Francisco, right? Um, so everything's, you know, gearing towards that. And, uh, all of a sudden I'm in the, the briefing room and, uh, this, this guy comes in as general comes in and says, Hey, we got a slight problem. Well, you know, slight problem in Moscow is a different term, right? And, and so he says, you can't fly. Um, inside of this beltway, which is where the show center was on the outside of the beltway. So basically what he was saying is they they took away half our airspace. Guess what? The airspace behind the crowd, which is where the rendezvous take place. So um, now they had known this all along. They just didn't tell us. And they had practiced the show that was going to fit that right in my mind. I mean, no one's told me this, but I, I bet. So then so we're like sitting there going, no, we need the airspace that, you know, you you can't do this. We had an agreement. Well, he goes, OK, let me see what I can do. And I'll never forget. He's on the phone and it's a it's a hard dial line. Remember, and he's talking to someone, and he's yelling at him. And I'm thinking, this is great. I got this three star general. He's he's really fighting for us. Hangs up the phone, looks at me, says, sorry, couldn't do it. I'm like, what? What do you mean he couldn't do it? And so bottom line is we got a decision to make. Um, and by the way, uh, later on, I got a call on that phone. He was yelling because the connection was so bad. It wasn't because he was trying to help us, right? Bottom line is boss and I and the team have to make a decision. And that is, are we going to fly? Because they're not going to give us the airspace. So that requires changing the show. Now, in the Blues, we don't do that, right? Um, and and if we do that, you know, because safety always comes first, what are we going to do? Right. And I'll never forget. We had a discussion. Not everybody was was was, was like gun ho. Uh, but we we really we we couldn't not fly. I don't think so. Bottom line, boss and I on a napkin are saying, OK, well, if it's a remote show, we'll do the head on Gucci. What do you want to do next? OK, we'll do the 360. Then I'll bring in the diamond here and I'll go, OK, we're going to we're going to take the sequence out. of. We're going to do the Fortis. And we know Kiddens scripted an air show on the back of a napkin uh, and then flew that. Uh, and and by the way, um, flew it safely. Uh, but I remember flying upside down in between apartment buildings in Moscow with the Fortis Thumper on my wing. And, and I'm just like, hang on, Thumper. We'll, we'll it'll work. And uh, and of course, it did work. Then we flew a second air show uh, over Kabinka with the uh, the full normal Blue Angel Air Show.
0: Gotcha. So I was going to avoid kind of the current economic political situation with Russia. You've intrigued me with your statement that we can get back to where we were when you were in Russia in 92. You want to expand on that? I'd I'd be very curious to hear your your perspective. This is not a
1: statement at all. I mean, obviously some really bad, horrific stuff is going on. Uh, I think what what we have to do as a society, not just the Russians, right, is you got to really treat people like we treated each other back in 92, all right, with respect and also, you know, um, figure out what's – you know, how are we going to stay this together? We're not separate, right? So obviously – the, the whole political thing could have been dealt with differently, in my opinion, prior to this. It got to a point where, OK, now you're, you're at war. I mean, my God. Right. So the bottom line is um, I think that, you know, people are people. Right. Human beings are human beings. And what I experienced in Moscow uh, can happen again all right? Um, And uh, it's not just because they're the Russian. I think this is every country. Now, you know, that's going to take some real diplomacy. That's going to take some real heartfelt um, communication and trust. And we established that in 92. Uh, And I think it can be established again.
0: Yeah, that's that's great to hear. And I I, I pray that that happens. Absolutely. Uh, As we uh, start to wrap it up here, you got to visit with some of your teammates, for probably the first time in close to three decades, uh, at this last 75th anniversary in Pensacola, how special was it for you to get that group all together in one room?
1: Oh, that was epic, Brian. You were there. Thank you for being there. Um, you know, it, it's because it was special being the 75th, right? So, yes, we do get together every year, but not at that level, right? And and what was really cool about last year was, you know, now you also got the new team has transitioned to the Super Hornet. So a lot of us are excited to see that show. Uh, you got to do a panel on the F4s and, and we got to do different panels. And so you really get to learn about things that you've only heard of. They're legends. And now you got the people there. And I'll tell you, you know, I just got goosebumps again because, um, what was amazing about last year was the, what happens, you know, off to the side, you know, and I know, uh, after one of the panels, I'm standing in the back and, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm starting to talk to solo pilots like Jungle who are legends, you know, and, uh, and some other people and and we're, and we're just shooting the shit, right? And all of a sudden, I, you know, they go, oh, yeah, well, we tried that maneuver here and it didn't work. And I go, what? You tried that maneuver? We tried that maneuver. It didn't work. And, and I never knew. That they had tried that, right? I mean, there is so much, and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, the negative G's, you know, uh were too much for this. And and now we're we're going back and forth. And it's 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 when you're talking to people who really get it, right? They understand what a negative G, what that negative G push-out means. Um, now you start to realize, holy crap. You know the, the the legacy, the the wisdom that's in the, uh, the 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 teams is priceless, and I think that's what's beautiful about uh, the reunion is we get to share those those stories. And I'm just so proud of the current team and what they're doing. Uh, we got the new team members coming on. Uh, every year is precious. Every year is new. Every year is making a difference. You know, a purpose larger than self. And uh, I just feel blessed. To have that experience, to be a small part of something that was much bigger than uh, than myself or or any of us, and that is the Blue Angels.
0: Yeah, and you just mentioned purpose larger than yourself. I saw some photos recently of a Blue Angels Foundation event out at yeah. uh, I think Maryland, Annapolis. I saw you in those photos. <laughs> So, how how important is that foundation to your life now, and what what the foundation does to support uh wounded veterans?
1: Yeah, well, big shout out to Manny and, and all the foundation uh, people who really got that thing started and, and are doing an incredible job. Number one, it, it it's a game changer, and now we got Bernie Willett, by the way, who has really raised you know uh, honorary, really raised the level of um uh, of what the foundation can raise with the wounded warriors and all that kind of stuff. Bottom line is it's about taking care of others, right? Not yourself and, and taking care of veterans. And it's incredible. Uh, the impact that the foundation's making for me personally, I'm just grateful to be asked to hey contribute a little, you know, show up at Naval Academy and uh, and give a little I didn't even know I was gonna do the narration. And uh uh and, and Scott Ian and myself intake are out there doing narration together. Never been planned. So we're 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 scripting it out in the bar the night before and uh and we're just going back and forth on stories. So it wasn't your normal narration, you know. We had leeway. We could do whatever we wanted, right? And uh bottom line is uh uh, it was a blast. Um, the foundation is making a difference. Uh, please, anybody who is listening to this, uh, if you get a chance, find out really what the foundation does. Um, I donate on a monthly basis. It's super easy. It's like 20 bucks. No big deal. Um, and it, it's just a subscription. Uh, but more importantly than that is, um, is, is donating your time. And I think every blue angel does this, whether they're current, past or future, you know, share your wisdom share your experiences. Uh, I always think we're there to inspire, right? Inspire greatness in another human being. And that can be done in a high school. It can be done right You know, next door. I mean, whenever you get the chance, uh, just tell the story that you're part of.
0: Awesome. So as we wrap up here, I love watching your social media. You're doing a lot of great public speaking, uh, both at Corp, big corporate, big corporations, but also, I mean, you share fantastic wisdom on social media. So I will link all of your social media in the description below for this video. And I encourage everyone to follow you because, uh, even those days where I need a pick me up, uh, you know, it's, uh, I get it from, from your, your channel. So I don't know if you want to tell the audience what you're up to today. Yeah. Uh, no, I've, post Blue Angel Life.
1: Absolutely. I yeah. mean, it, it is so crazy. I never expected to be out there speaking uh, about my life for the blues. Um, it just happened. It's been about two decades now. Uh, and it's the biggest joy I have because I finally get to give back in a way. It's like being the narrator again. You know, you get to share stories, but it's not just the Blue Angels. I think what's most important. So, yes, you know, we work with corporations, Over 1500 of them uh, to this day. All the big names. But more importantly, um, we get a way to share inspiration about, you know, your journey in life. You know, we talked a little about all those obstacles, right? And the Blue Angels are actually just a part of my life or anybody else's. You know, I went to Stanford Business School, did a bunch of work in the business world and and started to try to connect the dots between what we do on the Blues and how that can help uh, corporations and individuals around the world. Uh, love doing it. You know, it's, it's, it's a blessing every day. Uh, I love what you're doing. You know, look at the impact that you're making with this podcast. And so anything I can do to support you or anybody else, um, that's what we're here for. We're here to, uh, I have a new mantra, learn, grow, give. So every day I try to learn something, I try to grow and I try to give. And giving is not just money. It's giving, you know, praise, giving of your time, giving of your wisdom. Uh, and then I realized I had the order wrong. It starts with giving. And once you start with giving, then all these other things seem to um, just fall into place.
0: Well, that's awesome. And I, I love being around you guys. I appreciate you making time today. This has been a blast. I could talk to you forever. And uh, this was like the quickest hour I've ever sat through. But uh, yeah, personally, I love getting to interact with you guys. And I, I've been doing this for about five or six years. And my life has changed from just the lessons I learned with every discussion I have and what a, how I implement kind of that. Uh, Glad to be here. Blue Angel Lifestyle, whatever you want to label it into my own personal behavior. So I appreciate everything you're doing. Thanks for making time. And I'm sure the audience is going to love this discussion.
1: Glad to be here, Ryan. Keep it alive. And uh, thanks, everybody. Gucci out.